This message was presented at the DYC 2013 conference, Before Man and Angels, in Orlando, Florida. For other resources like this, visit us online at www.dycweb.org. Our Father in heaven, we thank you so much for the truths you have given to us. Lord, I pray that you would humble us to receive your message and hear your words clearly to our, to our heart right where we need to hear it. Father, if we need to be convicted as a people, as individuals, we pray for that. Even if it hurts, Lord, we want to hear what you have to say to us. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. Music is everywhere in our culture today. From the ball game to the worship service, the birthday party, the wedding celebration, the job site, the shopping mall, the restaurant, and the office. Everywhere we go, there is music. So is this an important topic to talk about or what? Now, I've got to say, of all six parts that we are going through at GYC, this is the one that's most difficult for me to talk about, personally. My name is Scott Ritzema, by the way, those of you who are new to the room. I, I teach Bible at Great Lakes Adventist Academy, and I've only been in the church for five years. Prior to being in the church, I had a rather sordid youth, and you can see on the screen an unfortunate image of yours truly in the band that I played in in high school. Now, the most interesting thing about these images, and I'm going to spare you, the, um, spare you the, the, the sound of the music, but the most interesting thing about these images to me, I'm the one in the center with the black on, you see the grotesque looking makeup, and if I were to play the image of the band playing, it's obviously it's worldly. But this was at a church. This was actually at a, uh, it was a Halloween party at a church, and this is the barn off-site uh, and, and the church. And um, so I come to you not as somebody who has always had a disdain and distaste for worldly music, and I've always loved the pure, sacred, and holy and simple music of God. No, not so. Not so. God has had to do a work in me on this issue of music in a major, major way. From playing bass guitar in the band to being a, a Napster addict in college when you could download all the music you wanted for free on Napster to today where God has recreated me in this area. Our, our text that we've been working with today is Romans 12, verse 2. Do not be conformed to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of our mind. We need God to transform us in this area as well as, or maybe more importantly even, than some other areas. But when it came to my musical taste, it was all about my own style, my own way of doing it, my own preferences. And I'll be, I'll be honest with you, music was an idol to me. I'm going to hand the floor over to Chad and Fadia Cruz who have been presenting on this session with us as well. All right, is that working? Okay. Uh, notice this quote right here. This is very interesting. Gospel workers, once again, as Scott and I grew up together, actually, I was in that picture with him. I was in the crowd uh, as they were playing their music there. But it says this, but it is sometimes difficult to discipline the singers. Many want to do things after their own what? Style. But that's my style. They object to consultation and are impatient under leadership. Well, ma well, mature plans are needed in the service of God. Common sense is an excellent thing in the worship of the Lord. It's interesting that she says that you need common sense in the worship of the Lord because we're at a point with, with music and styles that we... Actually, there is no common sense anymore to a degree, but she says somehow we need common sense in that. But then notice what it says in the upper right-hand corner of the screen. It says, music is the what? idol which many profess Sabbath-keeping Christians worship. Now, Scott said it, I can say the same thing. I used to, I used to live by music, meaning the music of the world is, I, like, I couldn't, I almost didn't like being around anything if the music wasn't playing. Constantly having the music going, and now, I wasn't one, a professed Sabbath keeper. I didn't even hardly know that there were Sabbath keepers on the planet, literally, but maybe Jews. But the point being that can it be that we make an idol out of our music? And I think the answer is absolutely yes. Sag Notice what it says in this next one Sacred music is not congenial to their what? Taste. Sacred music. Holy music is not congenial. It doesn't fit with the taste of many people. And I was one of those people. That there was certain music that I did not like. I, I straight up didn't like it. And maybe some of you can, can 
say, oh, I feel the very same way. There, you, you, you don't like certain music. And the fact is, is because there's certain things that we have tasted that we liked. And so as a result, generally when we like certain things, it causes us not, not to like certain other things, right? If we have friendship with the world, we are enmity with God. And the fact is, is that sometimes we disdain the things of God. And I can tell you this. I would say I went to a place called Mission College of Evangelism, which was in South Dakota 13 years ago. And when I went there, I did not go there as someone who enjoyed listening to hymns. I'll tell you that. And probably, I'll bet 80% of the young people that went there didn't enjoy listening to hymns. But virtually every one of us left enjoying hymns. You know why? Because we, most of us had a conversion experience while we were there, number one. And number two, people were singing it from their heart. Not like when you go to church and it's, once to every man. You know, just like a funeral dirge, right? Nobody likes to sing a funeral dirge, right? That's why they're at funerals, right? And so nobody likes to, I mean, and so, and we can do that with good music. You can make good music terrible by the way in which it is played. Yes or no? Even good music can be made, even our prophet said that, it can be made a burden. So the point being, but the fact is, the other, the other area can be that we can make an idol out of music. I have a certain style. We're going to see some other quotes about style and music and, and, and see that this is something that is very important to us. Uh, can there be dif differences and distinctions between music? Absolutely. But we can also make an idol out of our culture. I'm going to share with you very quickly about my culture. Many times we think it's a racial thing or something like this. Uh-uh. And people think, oh, that's, that's old European. The music, my culture, the culture that I came from was driving down the road with my dad singing Highway to Hell. Literally, singing it together, both of us, singing Highway to Hell. That's my culture. And so do I say, well, because it's my culture that makes it good? No. You see the difference? That culture doesn't make something necessarily good, but it also doesn't make something necessarily bad. But there are distinctions. And there is sacred music and there is certain music that is not sacred. Scott's going to be talking more about that. But Fadi is going to come up and she's going to share with us here um, about Colossians chapter 3, verses 15 through 17. First, I'll share a little something about uh, taste of music. Um, as I told you before, I grew up in the church, and, um, you know, I heard all the music and everything, but the world was always pulling me. Remember, and it first started with media, television, and I was always being pulled that way. And the Lord started to work on my heart, and I started to slowly, you know, work my way to more religious things, but I wanted to do it my way. <laughs> and so um, I started listening to Christian radio, uh, you know, in the car, Christian um, music, and it kind of went along with the music I was already listening to, and so it was okay. And, you know, I was listening to that stuff, and I could sing along and, and dance along in the car when I was, you know, but I'm, I'm dancing for Jesus, right? And so that's what I would do. And um, one of my friends had invited me to a weekend concert. It was um, a world tour. It's a Christian weekend concert, and they have all these different um, Christian bands, popular Christian bands, which I won't name uh, the names right now, but... Um, they were all there that weekend, and it started on Friday, and it went, you know, Friday, Saturday, Sunday, the whole weekend. So Friday night, you know, we come in. It started early in the morning on Friday and went all the way through the day into the night. And by Friday night, you know, the one band after the other after the other. Friday night, all the bands were on stage together and um, just started doing one song after another, got the crowd all stirred up. And we all started dancing, and this is all Christian music, right? We all started dancing and singing, and by the end, I kid you not, we were they were playing completely secular music, completely secular music, and they were all dancing, and nobody was singing anymore, and it was just, we were dancing and dancing and dancing. This was at a Christian concert, and at the end, there was nothing that was glorifying to God. We were all just dancing together and, you know, jumping up and down and doing all this kind of stuff to the point where the cops had to come and tell us to turn it down. 
This was at a Christian concert, and there was nothing Christian about it, but they started us off with Christian themes, right? But by the end, and these are bands that some of you may know um, that, that were there, and we were just partying like everybody else, and it was stuff I would hear in, in the um, clubs that we were totally playing right there and everybody dancing together. And, and some of the girls dancing with the guys that were, you know, I'm sure married to somebody else. You know, these are famous people that in the, in the Christian, all dancing up there. And, and at the time, I was so into it, it didn't hit me. Not until I went home and after the whole weekend, and I thought, that was a Christian concert I went to? And it just hit me. It, it like drew me back, 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 back to where I was trying to get out of. And I'm not here to put anybody down. You know, some people taper or do whatever. I'm not here to put anybody's experience down. But I'm just saying that sometimes we think we can substitute something and add Christian to it and, and it'll pull us, you know, towards God. But in my situation, it didn't. And it, it took me a lot longer to leave that. And praise the Lord, um, I was also able to go to Mission College. And we sang hymns, and we loved it. And you see young people excited and happy and glowing. And um, if you're not having that experience, um, it's not the music that's the problem. I promise you. It's not the music that's a problem if, if you're not enjoying those hymns. You heard Chad in, in an earlier talk say that the Bible is not naturally liked, correct? We don't naturally like it. Same thing happens with the sacred music. We don't naturally like it. Our flesh likes the things that excite the blood and excite the nerves, um, but it's the sacred music that, that touches the heart. And our minds can, um, can be riveted to God's word at those times. But let's see what the Bible says here. I talked about how at the end of that concert, God was not being glorified. At the end of that first night of the concert, God was not being glorified. Here in Colossians 3, verse 15 through 17, it says, And let the peace of God rule in your hearts, to the which also ye are called in one body, and be thankful let the word of Christ dwell in you richly in all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with what? Grace in your heart to the Lord. Grace is by the Spirit of the Lord, right? And whatsoever you do in word or deed, do all to the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God and the Father by him. Music is to glorify God. That's what it's there for. And mind you, everything you see in this is talking about the word, wisdom, teaching, admonishing in your music. It should be doing that for us. You know, once I started getting into hymns, I started realizing, wow, these are like mini sermons speaking to my heart. And as I listen to the music and I listen to the words, they're speaking to my heart. A lot of songs today they're not teaching us much. They're not, they're not, um, they don't have a lot of wisdom. It's just a lot of repeated things, right? So I started to realize, like, wow, Lord, you really have to do a reboot in my head on what really is sacred and, and glorifying to your name. Well, with that as our backdrop, um, I want to tell you right out of the gates, we are only spending the next 45 minutes on the issue of music. We have two more sessions, three more sessions to follow this, none of which cover music. Um, however, there is a lot more to be said about the issue of music than we are going to be able to cover during this time. What we are doing here is, is bits and pieces from the full Media on the Brain seminar. And so what you'll find on the, the full six DVD set is two entire discs on the issue of music. So this is the one issue probably we're giving the, the, the most uh, you know, brief treatment to because there's just so much to it. Um, so, so get the DVDs. We have a booth down in the exhibit hall. Chad and Fadia have a booth down in the exhibit hall. 
visit the Anchor Point Films booth, check out their materials. And, and if, you're not, if you weren't here for the first two sessions, if you're not going to be here for the last three, these DVDs will cover most everything that we're talking about this afternoon. So do visit us when, when you get a chance a little later, but I don't want to spend any more time. I want to dig right into this topic of music and see what we can find. I want to start with a beautiful verse. Do you know Zephaniah 317? Isn't this powerful? The Lord your God is with you. He is mighty to save. He will take great delight in you. He will quiet you with his love. He will rejoice over you with what? Singing. God actually is a singer. Now, do you understand maybe then why you love music so much? Because you were made in the image of God. And if God is a musician, if God is a singer, now we understand why we love music so much. And I mean that in the purest sense. Why Adam and Eve were created with this ability. In fact, if you look at the human DNA and you break down the bases of the DNA and you just line them right up, a DNA sequence, or if you take the protein, a, a given protein, you look at the amino acid sequence of that protein, what they've done in, in what's called musical genetics is they just assign each base a pitch and each amino acid a pitch, a a note, a tone, and then you can play your DNA and protein sequence. And this is what your DNA, this is the, uh, what, 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 what you hear when you play the human speech gene, for example. made of musical stuff. I mean, we're designed at the very micro level of our, of our very being. We are image bearers of God, aren't we? Here's the blue cone receptor gene. But it's not just at the miniature level. If you take a look at the planets, the planets in our solar system are actually producing musical tones. They are beaming out musical tones into outer space. And if you look at the, the tones that are being produced, over 90% of them are actually hitting notes right on the button. And not just any note, but 90% of them belong to the major scale. Isn't that amazing? And not just that, but the tones that they are producing are exactly within the hearing range of the human ears, the eight octaves that we can hear. The five visible planets to our planet are, that is. Has God designed our universe for discovery? Did he build us and the universe with musical principles at the very heart of it? And not just that, they found actually in recent research, this is brand new research, when you sing together as a congregation or as a school, as kids, uh, in a choir, whatever, when you sing together, recent research has shown that singing in a group, singing a hymn in a group, both calms and synchronizes the heartbeats of the singers. Do you understand what that means? Your heart rate slows down, and as you sing the notes and you breathe the, the pauses, the rests in the music together, your heartbeats start beating together as a group. They put heart monitors on, on a choir and they can discover this. It's amazing what God has created in us when it comes to music. And we knew this actually. In education page 68, we read this council. Let there be singing in the school, and the pupils will be drawn closer to God, and not just that, closer to their teachers and to one another. That's exactly what we're seeing in the research. Our hearts literally beat together as a people when we sing together. And so as often as possible, let the entire congregation join in singing. It, it just breaks my heart when I visit churches and we, we have a wonderful hymn being played and I can't even hear the congregation singing. I'm going, come on people, let's sing the praises of God like we mean it. And when we sing together, as this council says, we are drawn closer together. That's, that's the good side of things here. But the, here's the warning. This counsel comes from Testimonies, Volume 1, and it says, when turned, when turned to good account, music is a blessing, but it is often made one of Satan's most attractive agencies to ensnare souls. So we're going to spend a lot of our time on that this afternoon, and I'm not talking about the music industry and all of the satanic principles you'll find in popular music today. That's, I, hope, I hope that's a given for you, but if it's not, on our DVDs we cover that in great detail. But we're talking about music itself. We see that music itself can be used by Satan to ensnare souls. Now, that comes as no surprise, because when you look at Ezekiel 28, who was it that was the first musician referred to in heaven? 
That's Lucifer, isn't it? Your timbrels and pipes were prepared for you on the day you were created. Timbrels and pipes are instruments. And so Lucifer in heaven had the musical abilities as Satan today, no doubt he still retains that. And so it is one of his methods to ensnare souls as we just read. Now I want to share some counsel from you and prayerfully hear this, okay? Don't hear this from me. Hear this from the spirit that inspired these statements. I feel alarmed, in Testimonies, Volume 1, 496, I feel alarmed as I witness everywhere the frivolity of young men and young women who profess to believe the truth. God does not seem to be in their thoughts. Their minds are filled with nonsense. Now, if that doesn't describe the culture, the youth culture that has just seized us in, in America today, how much of what we talk about and think about are really substantive spiritual things? Or are our conversations filled with nonsense and vain talk? Ask yourself that as you go about GYC. You know, we're here for, for revival, to really connect with the Lord. Are our conversations reflecting that? And I'm not saying we can manufacture this. You can't just fake it. Are we in the Word, truly seeking the Lord? And these things will come out naturally. But by the way, if that quotation, if you heard that and you were like, I, I don't like that. Why would she say these, these, these rude things? Have you ever heard of another prophet that said, you brood of vipers? Who warned you to flee from the coming wrath? Produce fruit in keeping with repentance. And don't say we have Abraham as our father, because I can raise up stones. He will raise up stones from these stones, children for Abraham. The axe is already at the root of the tree, and every tree that does not produce good fruit will be cut down and thrown into the fire. Who said that? That's John the Baptist. Now, did John the Baptist ever write a book of the Bible? No, but is he a prophet of God? Does he say rude, mean-sounding mean things to get your attention, to wake you up because God loves you? He wants to win you back. And so sometimes it takes a statement like that to wake me up. And so I share that with you. But this quote was in the context of music. Their conversation is only empty, vain talk. They have a keen ear for music. And Satan knows what organs to excite, to animate, engross, and charm the mind so that Christ is not desired. This is about music. Animate, engross, and charm the mind. Exciting organs of ours. The spiritual longings of the soul for divine knowledge, for a growth in grace, are wanting or lacking. The introduction of music into their homes, instead of inciting to holiness and spirituality, has been the means of diverting their minds from the truth. Frivolous songs and the popular sheet music of the day seems congenial to their what? Didn't you just hear Jad and Fadia talking about that? Our tastes, the popular music of the day, seems congenial to our tastes. It, it, it engrosses our minds, excites and animates our minds, and even our organs. We're going to talk more about that in the brain in a minute. But the instruments of music have taken time, which should have been devoted to prayer. And then here we read, Satan is leading the young captive. Some of the strongest statements I can find in the spirit of prophecy on how the young are being led captive are on this issue of music. And we've got to take this seriously as a people. So let's do a little music 101. Let's educate ourselves a little bit about musical style, about understanding the, the principles for music. And I want to begin with a quotation. This is from Second Selected Messages, pages 66 to 68. And we read the following. Just before the close of probation, Prediction. There will be shouting with drums, music, and dancing. The senses of rational beings will become so confused that they cannot be trusted to make right decisions. And this is called the moving of the Holy Spirit. So is this about secular music or Christian music? This is about Christian music. So called. Satan will make music a snare by the lyrics in it. Is that what the quote says? No, by the way in which it is what? Conducted. That's about musical style, isn't it? And, and we make music an idol, and we get married to my style, and I've got to enjoy my favorite musical types. But here I'm reading counsel that Satan is going to use music as a snare in the last days. But not just that. He's going to use Christian-seeming music as a snare in the last days, particularly, particularly music that confuses the senses, music that that uh, includes, a, you hear the, the reference to drums there, so this in dancing, so this is going to be a heavily rhythmic music. And we're going to walk through all these principles as we go forward here. But I want to begin, actually, with a, with a question for you. How many, by a show of hands, 
prefer uh, if you were to, uh, to be given blueberries or strawberries and you get, to you get to pick, you get to choose. How many of you prefer strawberries? How many of you prefer blueberries? Okay, I think the strawberry people won by just a little bit. But have you ever heard a pastor or a preacher tell you of the evils of strawberries and that the blueberry people are going to heaven and the strawberry people are not? No, your preference between blueberries and strawberries is not a moral issue, right? It's a matter of mere preference. Some things are a matter of mere preference. Do I wear the red tie or the blue one? I kind of like the red one today. You know, it's not a, it's not a moral issue. But I have a question for you. Is music that way? Is music merely a matter of my own personal tastes and preferences? Or is there something objective we can say about music on a moral level? I've been told that beauty and art is all in the eye of the beholder. And there's nothing that God would say in this situation. It's anything goes. I have a quotation from a, a Christian musician who basically said this. He said, the message is not in the music, but in the words of the song. It matters not what kind of movement the music has. If the words are Jesus, heaven, faith, and life, then you have a song with which God is pleased. Do you agree with that? I hear some no's. There's some skepticism on this, and there should be. What did he just say? He said, you can house these lyrics within any kind of music you want, and you're fine. God is pleased with it. I'm not sure about that. Here's another quotation contrasted from the first. This is a psychiatrist. Interestingly, this is somebody from an academic viewpoint. He doesn't have an axe to grind in the Christian music debate. He's looking at this from a scholarly standpoint. And he says, music is made up of many ingredients. And according to the proportion of those components, pause right there. What are the ingredients music is made up of? Melody, harmony, and rhythm. Okay, so according to the proportions of these that you use, particularly I would add the rhythmic element, music can be soothing or invigorating, ennobling or vulgarizing, philosophical or orgiastic. And then he says this, it has the powers for, what's that next word? Evil, as well as good. This is a, psych a psychiatrist speaking, saying, look, music can, can be evil, orgiastic, and all of these things. Certainly we as Christians can accept this. But if we agree with the Christian musician I quoted, then we would have to accept this. Do you know what this is? That's a mosh pit. This takes me back to my days in the 1990s. Uh, in a mosh pit, they, they play the music as, as intensely and violently as they can, super rhythmically, super fast, super angry music, and then the dancers start flailing their bodies around, throwing elbows, kicking, jumping, and, and you walk out of there with a broken jaw or a missing tooth. And, and the whole idea is, is aggression. Now, here's the thing. There were actually four thrash metal churches in Los Angeles in the 1990s where they would supposedly worship God to this sort of music. If you agree with this Christian musician that the words are the only thing that counts, then we would have to accept that. We would have to say that is an acceptable form of Christian worship. And who are you to say? You can't say, God accepts it all? Does God accept it all? Do the angels dance like this? Of course not. It's silly to even ask the question. Here's another scholar that would, that would he points out the preposterousness of the conclusion that music is, is morally neutral. He says, music is the most powerful stimulus known among the perceptive senses. It, it, the medical, psychiatric, and other evidences for the non-neutrality of music is so overwhelming that it frankly amazes me that anyone should seriously say otherwise. This is Max Schoen in The Psychology of Music. And you know what? Uh, sadly, the only people who are saying otherwise, the only people who are saying that music, all forms of music are acceptable, uh, that I've ever heard are actually Christians who are defending certain forms of Christian music. Uh, if, you, if you consult um, uh, Frank Garlock, who studied at the highest levels of, of music in, in the universities, he had a lot of professors, most of them atheists, and he said, I've never met one musicologist, one music professor, who believed that music was morally neutral. It's just not a position held out there among intelligent people on the issue of music. But when we get married to our own styles of music, it's, I don't want to give that up. So I, I, I start to make leaps of logic that don't make sense. And, and this is why Jesus said, the children of this world are in their generation wiser than the children of light. Sometimes we have a hard time seeing it as God's people. And this is an area we've got to ask some questions about. So as we continue learning about music, I love to cite this guy right here. How many of you have heard of Dr. Manfred Kleins? 
Oh, he's awesome. He's awesome for two reasons. Number one, because he's the top musicologist of the 20th century. But the second reason he's awesome is just look at that beard. That's a sweet beard, isn't it? <laughs> I just can't get enough of that. I'll just leave him up on the screen for a minute. Dr. Manfred Kleins did some very interesting research on the issue of music and emotions. And he took different emotions and he had people express emotions like, like anger, grief, joy, reverence, and others. And he, he, had them, he had them use body gestures, facial expressions, vocal tones, and then he converted those expressions of emotion with a computer to a sine wave. And, and that sine wave pr produced musical tones or pulses, if you will. So we now know what joy sounds like in a laboratory setting. We now know what, know what reverence sounds like in a laboratory setting. And these were people from various cultures. Chad mentioned the issue of culture earlier. This was something that he made, we wanted to make, uh, take a look at human biology. And, and apparently the human DNA is just wired with this emotional stuff regardless of culture and it was virtually uniform across cultures which is so neat. Uh, now the joy sound, let me mimic some of the sounds, the anger one was kind of like this driving like <clears throat> sound like that. Uh, the grief sound was sort of a falling off tone like a <sighs> like that. Kind of like if you've heard somebody like <sighs> like that. The joy sound was sort of a bouncy sound just kind of like those kids bouncing in the air it was like bing like kind of like bing, kind of a bouncy sound. The reverent tone was more of a long, drawn out tone that was like like that. And now I have to apologize about something because I'm going to sing to you <laughs> and I'm not a professional singer, but I'm going, to, I'm going to sing some songs. And now that you know what those four sounds sound like, you can know what communication that I am sending you on an emotional level without any lyrics. I'm going to communicate something to you on an emotional level without any lyrics. So I'm going to sing a song. You tell me, is it, is it anger, grief, joy, and reverence? Remember, anger is the driving one. Grief is the falling off tone. Joy is kind of that bouncy one. And reverence is that long tone. Okay? Here's my first song. That was bouncy, wasn't it? That's, that's a joyful song, isn't it? How many of you know the name of that song? Jesus, joy of man's desiring. And so the lyrics match the, 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 musical, the musicality of it, right? Let me do another one. That's reverence, isn't it? Now, again, if you think about the words, when you do bring the words in, they have to match, right? The words have to match the musicality of it. Holy, holy, holy is a reverent tone. And it's sung in a reverent way. There's so many more examples we could do here. Uh, let me do another reverent one, because this is a, uh, a contemporary song, and I would never want to leave the impression that if something was written recently, that therefore it is by the virtue of the fact that it's recent, that, that it's therefore bad. No, not necessarily. It depends what the music is, is built, built upon, what it's like. And so here's one, another one. Ba -da -da -da. Did you hear the long tones again? And you know what the words to that are? How many of you know that song? Oh, in the secret, in the quiet place, in the stillness you are there. It reminds me of Elijah in, in the, hearing the still small voice of God. The lyrics go, I want to know you. I want to hear your voice. Now I'm going to play for you in a little while that song played uh, in, in, in contemporary settings. But before I do that, let me, let me quote for you Gordon Epperson. He's a, he's a, he's a, he was a musician who said that music is the expression of the emotions. Isn't that what, what I've been doing? I've been expressing joy. I've been expressing reverence. But I have a deeper question than that. Is music merely an expression of emotions or can music also control human emotion? I normally, I will do an experiment for you if we had time where I play music and you'd all, all of a sudden feel joyful because of the joyful music and so on. But we all know this intuitively. Let me quote the scholars who tell us, Dr. Richard Pellegrino says that music can trigger a flood of human, emo human emotions and images that have the ability to instantaneously produce very powerful changes in emotional states. Then he says this, take it from a brain guy. In 25 years of working with the brain, I still cannot affect a person's state of mind the way that one simple song can. And we're going to come back to that quote at the very end. That's a powerful statement, isn't it? There's nothing like music. Music, more than anything else, changes brain state. Ooh, strong statement from a doctor of, of the brain. Here we have uh, Dr. Manfred Kleins again, cool beard and everything. Music is an organization created to dictate feelings to the listener. The composer is an unrelenting dictator, and we choose to subject ourselves to him when we listen to his music. 
Again, a strong statement about how music not just influences the human mind, but can control the human mind. It is dictating things to us. And in fact, when he took those musical pulses to people from various cultures, he played the musical pulse. He just played the uh, sound, and people would have more of a reverent feeling to them. He played the bouncy joy sound, and people would have a more joyful feeling to them. And so music actually controlled their human emotion from the musical standpoint. And not just that, but subsequent studies were done by Capruso and Bingham and others where groups of a hundred would, would, uh, in an auditorium, they could universally have their minds altered by, by playing certain music up front and everybody would, would virtually have the same experience in, in laboratory settings in an auditorium. So here's one more quote from a cultural standpoint. This is an anthropologist speaking and he says, a musical anthropologist, the importance of music as judged by the sheer ubiquity of its presence is enormous. There is probably no other human cultural activity which is so all-pervasive and which reaches into, shapes, and often, what's that next word? Controls so much of human behavior. Music, more than anything else in culture, controls human behavior. I'm going to come back to that quotation at the end as well. It's a strong statement. But this reminded me of you know, how music affects human emotions and controls human emotions. It actually can trick your emotions. It can trick your mind into feeling something that's not real. Back in the 90s, Chad and I got my license first. Chad and I and the buddies, we'd go out for a long drive at 88 cents a gallon. Oh, those were the good old days. And we'd drive down the country roads, we'd put the classic rock on, and we'd listen to like the rock ballads from the 70s, maybe some, some Boston or whatever. I, I hope you don't know all of these things, but we got really into that. And that's just an example. There was a song that, that we especially liked to listen to, and I still remember it. It was called Amanda. And it was this song about this, this girl named Amanda that the singer is so in love with. And I remember hearing that song and feeling in love with Amanda. I didn't know Amanda. I, I'm not in love with any girl. But I, you know, I, I'm, I'm driving down the road feeling in love with Amanda because the music was so lovey, right? And, and then, you know, depending on, on the era you're from, you know exactly what I'm talking about. The love songs just make you feel lovey or the angry songs make you feel angry or whatever it is. But did, was I really in love? No. We then got involved in the charismatic community. We got involved with Christian worship that was very intensely emotional. And the design of the music, the design of the rhythm, the design of the lights and the smog machine and the way the singer talked and everything was to try to get you into this feeling. And once you could get in the feeling, I could sing of your love forever. And we'd just stand there singing over and over again repetitively. And we'd feel that we were in love with the Lord, that we not in the same sense of romantic love, but we thought we were fully devoted to the Lord in these feelings of spiritual ecstasy. I love the Lord. We, but then we would go from the worship scene. Chad's going to come up and tell you a little bit about this too. Uh, we, we got involved in this movement together. Talk, talk about, about your experience in that movement as well, Chad. You know, coming, Scott and I both had the same experience. You know, we were probably both loving Amanda at the same time, you know. Um, <laughs> I don't remember that particular song, but I can imagine we both were. But the point being, uh, we have this experience. Now, I, as a little side note, I want to be very careful in this sense because someone may, uh, and I know because I was this person, Scott and I being a part of the charismatic movement before we came into this church, one of the things that you experience is that you, you feel this way. And I had zero, zero interest in the Bible. Zero. My mom asked me, uh, she said, Chad, do you read the Bible? I said, I don't need to. Because back in the dark ages, they couldn't even read the Bible. They could still be Christians. That was one of the dumbest things I've ever said in my life. <laughs> they were dying to have the Bible back then, right? And I could have it, and I, and I wasn't reading it. But the fact is, I would listen to this music. We would dance at church. We would be a part of the mosh pit with the church and different things like this. And so we were all a part of these things, living by our emotions. And one of the things you notice is many times you notice it in somebody else more than you notice in yourself. Have you noticed that? Sometimes you just notice things that may be happening in your life, but you see it in somebody else. Uh, a good friend of mine, I noticed that when he was there, he was just living the life. We all were, because the music was blaring, and we were, we were dancing, we were, we were feeling good. And then I noticed that when he got away from it, he just, his you know, emotions just tanked, and he had to get back to it, because that was the only place he could really have his religious experience, was while the music was playing. And you see, music isn't in and of itself bad, but if, we, if the only thing that can give us an experience with God, what if the only time I could felt like, feel like I uh, loved my wife was when I turned the music on? You see how that'd be a little bit strange? 
Like, my wife and I, we, we really don't enjoy each other's company, but we turn on the song and we're like, we love each other, right? Something wouldn't be right there. You see, now the music can escalate our experience, but it shouldn't be our only experience. Does that make sense? And I didn't want the Bible. This music actually, I believe, was leading me away from the biblical picture. And so God wants us to have something that will increase it. And I also want to say is, if you don't naturally like the, that certain kinds of music, uh, holy music, it doesn't mean that you never could. Remember, God can change our tastes. He can change our hearts. He changed mine. And now I don't need the, the music all the time to give me a religious experience, but I can meet Jesus in the silence of my bedroom when I spend time with Him in the Word. But initially, I couldn't. It takes time with God. So I want to challenge you, get in the Word. God can change your tastes. Thank you, Chad. I, the, the, the experience Chad described, you know, we would go from the worship setting and, and we'd feel connected with the Lord. And then we weren't growing in grace. We weren't serving, sharing the truth, studying the Bible. You test your religious experience not by the feelings. You test your religious experience by the fruit. What is God doing in your life? And that's not meant to, you know, heap guilt upon us. If I see that I am lacking fruit, I need to go be converted again, today, every day, right? And I need to get in the Word every morning, and then I will know that I am in the Lord. Test yourselves to see that you are in the Lord. Now, moving along with some of this information, we've just examined the fact that, that music can dictate feelings to us, right? And it can trick us into thinking we are experiencing something that we are actually not. But I have another question about this. Can certain kinds of music then dictate unholy feelings, inappropriate feelings, unhealthy feelings? And for that, the, the, uh, this issue of inappropriateness, I have a quotation here from Patriots and Prophets, which I love. It says, music forms a part of God's worship in the courts above. And we should endeavor in our songs of praise to approach as nearly as possible to the harmony of the heavenly choirs. And then we read, the heart must feel the spirit of the song to give it right impression. So is there an appropriateness to worship? If I sang, holy, 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 joyfully, or I sang, Jesu joy of man's desiring, in a grieving way, would that be appropriate? No, holy, holy, holy is supposed to be reverent. Jesu joy of man's desiring is supposed to be joyful, not grieving. So we have to feel the spirit of the song to give it right expression. Have you read in 1 Corinthians 14 that we are to sing with the spirit and the understanding also? The spiritual aspect, the emotional aspect is a piece of the puzzle. And we need to make sure we are acknowledging and doing it right. We read in this other quotation, those who, are, those who make singing a part of divine worship should select hymns with music appropriate to the occasion. So I have a question for you. Of that list on the screen, Joy, reverence, anger, grief, even sexual expressions. These are different ones that Manfred Klein's examined uh, when he, he's, the, he's the, the authority on emotional expression, especially on the musical side of things. Joy, reverence, anger, grief, and sex. Five items up here. Which of these do you think are appropriate for Christian music, Christian worship? Probably the first two, certainly, right? Definitely the first two, joy and reverence. In fact, they can be combined. You know that, there's another melody in that same song. And that's reverence, isn't it? Reverence and joy combined. I can't imagine a better combination of emotional expressions when Jesus comes again. When we see Jesus, aren't you going to feel joyful? But aren't you going to feel reverent in his presence? Now, I don't think this one, this one's not working for me. Anger? Like, should that be in our Christian worship? No, no, no. I can see occasionally in certain contexts, uh, if you're singing, Oh, sacred head now wounded, you, you grieve for the loss that Christ experienced. We don't stay there. That's not our tone of worship. But in certain contexts, that might be appropriate. How about this last one? Sexual expressions, ever appropriate for Christian music? Never, never, never. Thank you for that, sister. Never. Of course not. Do I even need to ask the question? Well, Here's, here's what I'm going to show. I told you I was going to play the uh, contemporary example of in the secret. Listen to the words. In the secret, in the quiet place, in the stillness, you are there. I want to hear your voice. The secret, the quiet place. I'm let it play for just one more second. I want you to hear his vocal tone. 
Okay, let's put an end to that. Did, I don't want to get graphic with you, but did you, you, you heard the sound of that. that. That was not appropriate for Christian worship. I don't know if you've ever listened to worldly music. I hope not. I used to listen to the band Aerosmith. That's exactly what that singer sounds like, and he sings very sexual songs. I'll just leave it at that. Uh, but don't just take uh, you know, that anecdote as the... Ex- I want you to hear it from the top musicologist of the 20th century and the top conductor of the 20th century. What have we gotten ourselves into with this Christian pop worship Christian rock, whatever you want to call it. I don't want to narrow it down to a category because these, these things might mean one thing. to it's, You know it when you hear it. It's the heavily rhythmic kind of music with often with that, that sexual singing tone. Here's what Manfred Klein's agnostic, I atheist guy, not coming into this from a religious angle, but he says, Christians, the music I hear in your churches communicates the emotional expression of anger and the emotional expression of sex. Those were the two that we found were completely inappropriate for Christian worship. And those are the two that we are communicating with modern popular Christian music. Anger and sex. Did you hear the driving drum rhythms? And the, the guitar, and it was that driving anger sound. And if you didn't hear anger in that, because maybe we've just heard so much of this, we start to not see the forest for the trees, I would challenge you to unplug from popular musical styles for 60 days. Go back and listen to it, and you will hear sexual tones of singing that you didn't ever realize were sexual. Or you'll hear this, this rhythmic stuff will just start to jar you. You'll be like, ah, I don't like it anymore. Like they were describing coming out of that experience in South Dakota. When you deprogram de- yourself from this, you start to be able to see it. Now, it's not just Manfred Klein's. It's also Robert Shaw, the top conductor of the 20th century, who said, I don't even know if the church today understands the music brought into the church. The people don't understand the music. It is, what's that next word? perverse. He's talking about the sexual level again. By the way, if you're wondering what sexual singing sounds like, here's your rule of thumb. If you hear a a, a male or female singer, let's start with female. If you hear a female singer and she's singing in a way that you would think would be inappropriate if she was speaking in those same tones to somebody who was not her husband, then it's inappropriate forms of singing. It's sexuality in the singing. Or the guy. If you hear a guy singing, in a way that if he was speaking that way to a lady, not his wife, you'd be like, oh, I'm not sure if that's appropriate. Then we know we've entered into the realm of what these gentlemen are talking about, what they are observing from musicality standpoints, musicology standpoints. They're saying this Christian music that's come in, and this was in the late 20th century when it was starting to become popular, they said it's communicating sexuality and anger. What a rebuke to us. What a rebuke to the Christian community to have the top musicologist who's an atheist say, what are you guys doing? Like, he knows our music is supposed to be reverent and joyful and these other things. He's shaking his head going, what's going on? Now, if you look at Dr. David Elkin, the child psychologist, he also pointed out that there is a great deal of powerful sexual stimulation in the rhythm of rock music. So it's not just the sexual singing tones, it's actually built within the rhythm of the music as well sexually stimulating. Now, again, not from a Christian point of view, but this is a secular musician, Billy Joel, who points out that music is essentially the manipulation of sound. It has the power to arouse, it has the power to frighten, it has the power to make people profane. Is he talking about the lyrics? No. He's saying music has this power. And he says, you know all those things they were saying about rock and roll in the early days? Ooh, it's going to subvert our youth. It's going to make them all want to have sex. It's going to make them all go crazy. They were right, he says. That music has the ability to arouse, to make people profane, and all of these things, he said. That's a powerful statement from somebody who was in the movement. But not just... Billy Joel, not just the sexual of them. By the way, I'm leaving out a lot of slides. There's quotation after quotation from musicians, doctors, psychiatrists, and others saying that this this is the reality. This music does elicit a sexual response in the brain. Uh, but it's not just the sexual element. When we, when we cite Dr. Pierce J. Howard, uh, he's the director of the Center of Applied Cognitive Studies in, Sar- in Charlotte, North Carolina. He's the author of the Owner's Manual for the Brain. He explains that very loud music, which is typically how we like to listen to our popular music, creates an altered state of consciousness akin to an alcoholic or drug-induced stupor that can become addictive. And it's not just the, the psychiatry standpoint. The rock musicians themselves, there's, there's Steven Tyler of Aerosmith, he pointed out that rock music is the strongest drug in the world. Has anybody at the, I, I want to I ask you, I have. Feel free to, to, to confess with me. This is a, a little uh, music, musicaholics anonymous moment. How many of you have felt you might have been addicted to a musical style at some point in your life? 
That's a good number of people in here. So testifying to the truth of his statement is a strong drug. It is an idol, which many professed Christians worship. We read earlier from the Spirit of Prophecy. But it's not just Stephen Tyler. Here we also have Timothy Leary. He was a professor at Harvard uh, in the 1960s, promoted the use of mind-altering substances and music. And he said, don't listen to the words. It's the music that has its own message. I've been stoned on the music many times. Music not only elicits a sexual enhancement excuse me, in the brain, but also a pleasure hit like that of a drug that you are taking. And that's why you hear that described from psychiatrists, from psychologists, musicians, and professors alike. It really does have that effect. And didn't we read earlier, Satan knows what organs to excite, to animate and gross and charm the mind so that Christ is not desired. We have everything we need just in the spirit of prophecy on this topic, don't we? Now, I think it gets a lot more serious than just the sex, drugs, and rock and roll thing. We're looking at an issue of spiritualism in the last days. It's claimed to be the moving of the Holy Spirit, but if you read the rest of the pages, second selected messages, 56 to 58, 56 to 58, it, it, it talks about how demons blend with the din and the noise, and it makes it a carnival. And so there is something spiritual happening, not just sexual release, drug-like release, and these things. I want to get into that now, music and spiritualism. This is a musician named William Ora, and he writes the following. We had discovered something in, in popular music. We had discovered something that people knew eons ago that polyrhythms can be used for hypnotic induction, for altered states of consciousness, even for soul travel. Poly, poly means many, right? So a music that has much rhythm to it, many rhythms to it, can be used to induce hypnotism, altered states of consciousness, soul travel. What he's describing is spiritualism, isn't he? He's saying we can use rhythm to induce these spiritualist things. But it's not just William Ora. When we look at the voodoo community and, 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 and how worship takes place in many pagan situations, not just the famous Caribbean ones, but the intricate layers of the multiple rhythmic drumming are are considered the primary source of occult power. So when we look at what is it that brings about this, this spiritual experience for pagan worshipers, it, it has to do with the drumming, is what we read from uh, archaeologist Richard Hodges. But also the follower of voodoo seeks to incorporate a god into himself, we call that demon possession, by writhing and leaping through a dance, while drums bang out complex rhythms. So again, it's the rhythmic element of the music that is the key in inducing a spiritualist experience in these pagan ceremonies. Now, if you cite, what does this have to do with our music, you might wonder? We're not going to a voodoo community. Well, what little Richard tells us is, my true belief about rock and roll is this. I believe this kind of music is demonic. A lot of the beats in music today are taken from voodoo, from the voodoo drums. If you study music and rhythms like I have, you'll see that this is true. So he's admitting it, and you can look into that, you can, you can listen to it, and you just hear it, especially when you've been unplugged for it, from it for a while. You hear it with New Year's, you're like, man, that's heavily rhythmic. There's a ton of rhythm to that song. I, I like a little bit of salt on my, a little bit of salt on my food, right? Uh, but you don't open the container and dump it out. Um, Frank Garlock, musicologist, talks about how, how orchestral style music has a rhythm to it, right? Is rhythm bad? If there's no rhythm, there's no song, right? You've heard New Age music? Bing, bong. I mean, that's not music. In fact, they write on their CD. I picked up a New Age album one time at the store. It said alpha inducing. If you were at the seminar earlier today, you learned about the alpha trance and the lower brainwave frequency that we get into. So you need to have rhythm to the song. A mighty fortress is our God. There was music in whatever. There was rhythm in the music I just did right there. So again, rhythm is not the problem, but it's the amount of rhythm. Orchestral music is about 2% rhythm. It's primarily driven by the, by the rhythm, by the, by the melody and the harmony. Rhythm comes tertiary in that, in that sequence. Frank Garlock tells us that 75% of rock music and popular music is, is built around rhythm. Because what the, what the rock music movement did was they took what it used to take a bunch of different guys banging on different percussive instruments, and now you've got a drum set. And that drum set, one guy with two arms and two feet, can produce a polyrhythmic village right there, and you've got a, 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 a baptized voodoo ceremony in American culture. But it's not just the, the, uh, the, the, the drum set itself. It's also the rhythm guitar that you'd layer over on top of that. Even the bass guitar, sometimes a piano, that's a percussive instrument. Uh, sometimes a clapping or, or even vocal tones. And other things would be brought into the music to make it heavily rhythmic or even polyrhythmic. 
Now, if you consult also Mickey Hart, he's one of the wide, most widely known experts on percussion and the drums. He's the drummer for the Grateful Dead. He says, everywhere you look around the world, people are using drums to alter consciousness. Now, I want to make a very important point there. Where did he say you can look? Everywhere around the world. It doesn't matter what continent, wherever pagan worship has emerged, we find these things having to do with excessive rhythm using drums to alter consciousness. So this is not one, one, one race, one continent. If anybody has ever presented this as a racial message, that's just wrong. It's just not accurate uh, on a geo-cultural uh, uh, level here. But I have discovered, he says, along with many others, the extraordinary power of music, particularly percussion, to influence the human mind and body. Altering states of consciousness, he says. Everywhere around the world, people are using drums to do this. Jimi Hendrix tells us more. I'm going to read just this middle part here. He says, we try to make our music so loose and hard-hitting, you hear the rhythmic element, the hard-hitting, so that it hits your soul hard enough to make it open. It's exactly what the popular music movement has done. Dr. Michael Ballum tells us that the human mind literally shuts down after three or four repetitions of a rhythm or a melody or a harmonic pro progression. So we're looking at a situation not just of spiritualism, but also of the, the lowering of our defenses, of our frontal lobe. When we look at Juanita McElwin, PhD in music, music therapy, uh, rock style music bypasses the frontal lobe and our ability to reason and make judgments about it. And this music, like television, can produce a what? hypnotic effect and this is very real of what's happening in the rock music the popular music and they don't don't get hung up on names by the way this is the if you listen to the the, the popular country music based on rock and the hip-hop the r&b basically on the whole radio dial you go across and you'll you'll find stuff all rhythm based on almost every station and it's producing a hypnotic effect dr newberg did a very interesting study because this shows the lyrics don't matter he studied Christians in a charismatic worship experience. So they're listening to their, their favorite Christian praise worship, music, gospel, whatever, and they're in their, their ecstatic experience, and he found the prefrontal cortex shuts down. It's off. It's out. Which is, that's the most important area of the frontal lobe. We covered that this morning. I've got to keep moving. But Dr. Newberg has shown Christian charismatic sort of worship shuts down prefrontal cortex function. Again, Jimi Hendrix just explains it so, so succinctly. He says, music is a spiritual thing of its own. You can't hypnotize people with the music. And when you get them at their weakest point, you can preach into the subconscious what you want to say. Now I have a question for you. What happens when you take music that bypasses the frontal lobe, hypnotizes the listener, opens the door to spiritualism, alters your state of consciousness, causes you, your, your mind to be shut down, enhances sexual hormone release, and, and releases drug-like response in the brain? What happens when you take music that does all those things and you sing Christian lyrics to it? The answer is, this Christian music, so-called, will bypass the frontal lobe, hypnotize the listener, open the door. It's the same list, isn't it? I don't need to read the whole thing again. You get the point. The lyrics aren't what did that to us. And so the music is the issue in the last days. Remember the quote from Second Selective Messages. It, it, will, it will look like the moving of the Holy Spirit. It will look like Christian music. People will claim it's Christian music, but it will actually be Satan making music a snare by the way in which it is conducted. So are we going to be, are we going to be taking a look at this critically or just accept it because it's got a Christian label on it and it's got Christian words? The devil's way more savvy than that. In fact, if you look in the last days, when, when, when we see last days Babylon, the harlot of Babylon, the last days deception, this, this presentation is called Music and the Last Days Deception. How about ancient Babylon? Can ancient Babylon give us an insight into last day's Babylon? You see the exact same thing happening. Ancient Babylon had an image, had a false worship system, and had a death decree. Does that sound familiar? Last day's Babylon is also called Babylon. It's reminding us, look back to ancient Babylon. Look back to ancient Babylon. <coughs> Excuse me, there's a false, uh, an image made to the beast in the last days. There's a false worship system imposed on the inhabitants of planet Earth, and there is a death decree upon those who do not take the mark of the beast. Now, if you've ever noticed, in ancient Babylon, it was music that prompted the worshipers to fall down and worship the statue of gold, right? So the question is, if the pattern has fit so far, will it continue to? You can expect it to for a few reasons. Number one, because the devil is a musician. Of course he's going to use the number one tool in his tool bag. But another reason, we have the quotation from earlier, just before the close of probation, Satan will make music a snare by the way in which it is conducted. How will this happen? Do you know about the counterfeit trinity of Revelation 12 to 13? 
Dragon, beast, false prophet. I'm moving quickly so that I can finish this up in time. Dragon, beast, false prophet. And, and now I have another question for you. Are we in the last days? We are in the last days. So it, would you expect that these three would be at the top of the world, that the most powerful and influential movements in the world today would be spiritualism, the papacy, and American apostate Protestantism? Would you expect those three, if we are in the last days, to be standing tall and strong as the most influential and powerful movements or institutions in the world? The answer to that is yes, right? Guess what? What are the three top media funeral events in human history? I hear some good guesses. By the way, before I put them up there, the individual who's number one is quoted in, in, in disc three of our seminar that we're skipping today. You know where I'm going with this. He's quoted as... As, as, as communicating with the dead. So before I get up there, you're like, what? How is he up there? He, he was into spiritualism before his death. But the top three media funeral events in human history were number one, Michael Jackson, number two, Pope John Paul II, and number three, Ronald Reagan. Isn't it interesting? It goes spiritualism, papacy, second beast. Not that Ronald Reagan is the second beast, you understand, but he represents the American system, you understand. Uh, but Michael Jackson, again, he's not the dragon or spiritualism, but he was a spiritualist and he was the king of what? of pop, the whole popular music movement. He was the guy at the top of that, the king of that. And being a spiritualist, the music industry is just loaded with spiritualism. We don't have time today to cover it. It's all in disc three. But there you have the three standing tall and strong. But my question is, are they clasping hands across the gulf? Are you familiar with this quotation from Great Controversy? If you haven't read Great Controversy, read it cover to cover. As soon as you get, or start now, get a copy down there at the, at the exhibits. And you read, the papacy, spiritualism, and American apostate Protestantism will reach across the gulf and clasp hands. So do we see these three, not just tall and strong as the most influential movements, everybody's watching their funeral, but are they connecting in the last days? The answer to that is very much yes. And through the music industry, this individual Bono on the screen, uh, singer of the band U2, you can see the symbolism there, but moving on just very quickly to show you the imagery of how the music industry connects with geopolitics and religious power in the world. Bono meeting with all of the presidents of my lifetime almost, and the Pope himself, literally in some cases clasping hands. Isn't that so symbolic to see them holding, clasping hands, music industry, papacy, and the second beast coming together in the last. So we know we're in the last days and the music uh, movement has very much a part of this. And how so? Well, music can become a universal language, sociologist John Blacking tells us. And through the true transformation of individuals, music becomes a vehicle for what? World, doesn't that sound so nice? World peace and the unification of mankind. Brothers and sisters, if you see the whole world uniting, I don't care what they call it, peace, love, and, or even Jesus, if you see the whole world uniting around something, it, it, did the whole world follow the lamb or the whole world wandered after the beast? The beast. Music can become the vehicle for this, he says. Now, not just that, but it's actually been happening in recent decades. We actually see talk of a world social formation and the possibility of a strategy for global moralization were no longer considered a figment of speculative imagination. Because of the universal availability and acceptance, popular music was identified as the major rallying point for the formation of an international youth culture based on common worldwide tastes and values. Coming from a sociology standpoint, they described popular music was the powerful cohesive force to bring everybody together. How is that? Well, as, as leading ethnomusicologist David McAllister says, music seems to be the clearest reinforcement of identity that we have. Who am I? It's the bands I like, it's the singers I like, it's the style I'm into. It's my identity, right? Well, could it be that by fostering a homogenized global musical style, a style that is increasingly visible in what kind of music circles? Christian musical culture. The stage is being set for a global religious identity response. A response that will allow all people of all nations, of all religious backgrounds, to say, and before I read what they say, think about it, the devil is going to communicate his deceptions in various ways in the last days. One of those methods being music. Music is the carrier for the last day's deception. And as the, the music carries people along, they follow and say, oh, yes, this is my music. This is who I am. And this is my music for being happy and religious. Frontal lobe is off, spiritualism induced, and I am right at home and I am a part of it now. And the whole world wandered after the beast. 
Will music be used? You can count on it. How exactly, I don't know, but I do know this. We need to right now, today, just like these guys did long before the statue was put up and they had to decide whether to stand or bow, we have to right now make our decision on which side we will stand. Are we willing to be different? Are we willing to be weird? You've heard a lot of things today so far that if, if, if you accepted the science, spirit of prophecy, the Bible, the, the, the Holy Spirit's leading in your life and you made changes, people would look at you like you're crazy, right? Like, really? Why are you da 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 da? Uh, well, do you think these guys might have looked crazy? Do you think they were very different? They were very different from the rest of their culture around them. When it comes to our musical tastes, are we willing to put that on the altar? Are we willing to say, God, it's yours. I want to come to love sacred music that I'm going to be hearing in heaven, the angelic type. And I want to develop a distaste for the musical styles of this world, whether there's Christian lyrics to them or not. Are we willing to make that stand so that when the time comes, we will be able to, and I mean neurologically able to, stand? Because this music stuff is much more powerful than we've given it credit for. And we've got to take it seriously. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for the truths of your word. Thank you for the counsel we have of inspiration to warn us about music in the last days. Help us not to make idol, uh, an idol out of our music. Lord, we confess many of us have. I know I certainly did. And Father, we, we come to your throne of grace in repentance, seeking your forgiveness and your transformation, that you will transform our minds, our tastes, that you will give us a love for the holy and pure and heavenly things. Lord, we know that there is a time coming where, where we will be tested and we want to be ready. Father, I thank you for the remaining sessions that we have left that we can look on Sabbath together at how to prepare our brains for the last final controversy. Lord, we pray that you give us the principles as we move forward in the seminar to overcome our, our, our addictions, our, our compulsions that we can't help but do. Lord, we know that you will create a new creation in us that we can be have Christ in us, that it may no longer be I who lives. In Jesus' name, amen. This message was recorded by Fountain View Productions for GYC. GYC, a supporting ministry of the Seventh-day Adventist Church, seeks to inspire and equip young people to be vibrant, Bible-based, and Christ-centered Christians. To download or purchase other resources like this, please visit us online at www.gycweb.org.